How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen? Good to see you all here. Is it possible to turn the lights up in the house just a tad, not all the way, just a little bit so people can see their notes if they're, if they're taking notes? All right. Uh, today is part six of our Unstuck series. Very, very excited about uh, finishing this up. I want to just uh, reiterate what they said in the announcements that this 1245 meeting is going to be very important for if you consider Lineage Church your home, please be here for that. No child care will be provided. Just bring your kids in here to the sanctuary. Don't worry, we're not going to keep you here all day and all night, okay? Uh, and no food will be provided either. So it, be in here by 1245 so we can get you out in time to go eat some lunch, okay? Uh, also, Good Friday service. So the next three, look at what happens. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. That's the triumphal entry of Jesus. So over the next two weeks, we get to go through the entire Easter story. Next Sunday, the triumphal entry when he entered Jerusalem on the donkey and they put the, the, the palm branches on the ground and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Good Friday, the day they crucified him. And then Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. You don't want to miss any of those services. But specifically, you don't want to miss Good Friday. You know what I find is... Everybody comes to Easter. Almost nobody comes to Good Friday. Yeah. Easter without Good Friday is like the New Testament without the Old Testament. Yeah. It's like the fulfillment without even knowing what the promise was. Yeah. It's like witnessing a healing, but you don't even know what the sickness was. Yeah. It's, a solution. it's a solution without the problem. You need Good Friday in order to fully understand Easter Sunday. Yeah. You've got to come to Good Friday service. And i got a word stirring on the inside of me for Good Friday that I believe is going to change your life. Amen. I always look forward to Good Friday. Yeah. It's, it's so important. So please be here for Good Friday or be on the stream. Um, <clears throat> amen. Okay. Father, be with us today as you always are. Speak to us by the power of your word and spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. amen. I want to talk to you today about the fundamental characteristic of maturity fundamental characteristic of maturity is the ability to distinguish between your identity and your calamity. The fundamental characteristic of maturity is the ability to distinguish between your identity and your calamity. Individuals who are mature don't forget who they are when they're going through a crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They understand that their condition and their identity are two different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That your condition does not change your identity. Now it's a very popular thing. You see, you see it all over the place. I didn't make this up. But if you take a $100 bill and you ball it up and you crumble it up and you spit on it and you drop it in some doo-doo and whatever you want to do to it, it changes its condition, not its value. Yeah. It's still a $100 bill. Yeah. It's still worth the same, yeah. regardless of its condition. What happens with us human beings yeah. is that we walk through a calamity and lose our identity. Wow. We begin to think less of ourselves wow. because of our condition. Wow. Instead of understanding that your condition and your identity are two different things. Your situation and your identity are two different things. 
We all know what's happened in the last week, some very, very important, perhaps the most important event that has ever happened in the history of the world. Will Smith slapped the crap out of Chris Rock at the Oscars. I mean, now we understand why his mom got so scared when he got in that one little fight in West Philadelphia. He gives a half-hearted apology at the Oscars, but then the next day he gives his real apology. The next day when he comes back to his senses, and he says, this is not who I am. I lost sight of who I was for a moment. My behavior reflects a a dramatic loss of identity. A catastrophic loss of identity in a moment of rage caused me to act out of character with myself. That is, in the midst of this calamity, I lost sight of my identity. And because I lost sight of my identity, I became a different person. And I did something that's out of keeping with my character. I'm actually a man of love. If you follow Jesus' life, The one characteristic of Jesus that sets him apart from every other historical figure is his ability to know who he was and who he is, regardless of what was happening. You see, we talk a lot about believing in Jesus. Jesus actually didn't need anybody to believe in him. He knew who he was, even when nobody else in the room did. And matter of fact, often he found himself in situations in which nobody knew who he was except himself. And oftentimes people thought they knew who he was and he corrected them. No, that's not the one. No, that's not who I am. Even the people who thought he was the Messiah, he had to stop them and correct them because they didn't know who the Messiah actually was. Even when his disciples discovered that he was the Messiah, they had misinterpreted what it meant to be the Messiah. Jesus was insult, was the sole possessor of his personal identity for his entire life, and he never lost it. He's a little boy, 12 years old. He's in the temple questioning the rabbis. His mom and dad come and spent two days trying to find him. They find him in the temple. They said, don't you know we were worried about you? He said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I know who I am, even though I'm only 12 years old. He, was already, he already knew who he was at 12 years old and already knew what he was supposed to be doing. He would find himself like in Luke chapter 15, there's tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear him, but there's rabbis and teachers of the law standing on the back wall judging him. This man eats with sinners and welcomes them. He's not moved by the criticism of the religious elite because he knows who he is. And because he's not moved, because he knows who he is, he simply tells three parables, confronts all of them with their misidentification of who he was. See, the people around Jesus often misidentified him, but he never misidentified himself. I'm thinking of even when he stood before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate begins to question him, and he doesn't answer any of the questions, and Pontius Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to either let you live or take your life? And Jesus says, nah, you wouldn't have any power over me that wasn't given to you. I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father at the core of his identity from the time he was born was he knew that he was the son of the father. 
and his calamity did not change his sense of identity. Man, if we could just be like Jesus. You ever felt worthless? <laughs> you ever felt hopeless? You ever thought you were ready for something until you stood in a room full of people who didn't believe you were ready for it? I remember when I was a Bible college student, I was an up-and-coming worship leader. I remember I was invited to lead worship at a gathering of scholars, although I didn't know it was a gathering of scholars. They didn't tell me what it was. They were like, we're having a meeting so I got in there and I just got up and I led worship without thinking. And it was the most, it was a wonderful time. And afterwards, one of the pastors in the room walked up to me and said, I'm so amazed that you were not intimidated by this great body of scholars. Don't you realize that these are the great scholars from around the world in biblical studies? I said, I didn't know that. And I'm glad I didn't know that. <laughs> because I certainly would have been intimidated. I wasn't just, I was playing the piano and leading worship and I was preaching at them and I was exhorting and I was quoting scripture. I was doing the whole Benjamin thing. Now, had I known that these were the greatest biblical scholars in the back of my mind, I would have been going, oh, is, is this right? Is this theologically correct? Are they going to, oh, am I saying this right? Oh, maybe they're thinking, why is he saying that? Well, that's not right. In the back of my mind, I probably would have been intimidated. I would have been judging myself. Matter of fact, I know that I would have been and I'll tell you why. Because when I became a seminary student the first year, I was invited to lead worship at this big church in Southern California for a conference they were having. And, and I got there and the pastor is a very well-known pastor around the world. And I was so excited to be leading worship at his church. But the first night he wasn't there. He was out of town. And it was powerful. I just did the whole Benjamin thing. I just did, I did me. I wasn't worried. You know, there was nobody famous in the room. But the next night, the pastor was back in town. And I did not anticipate the intimidation that I would feel. When I looked out and I saw this man in the front row, everything inside me melted. All of my confidence wasted away. And I lost sight of my identity. I had an identity crisis in which I forgot who I was because I wasn't sure that he would believe me. I wasn't sure that he would agree with me. If I show you who I think I am, are you going to agree with me? If I fully manifest who I believe myself to be, are you going to agree with me? Or are you going to judge me? Are you going to criticize me? Are you going to cut me down? Because that would be the worst possible scenario. I had a friend in high school who his mother ran a home for men who were mentally ill. This is not a joke, by the way. I do not say this to make a joke of anyone. But in this home, I would visit my friend a lot. And the one characteristic of most of these men was they believed themselves to be somebody that they were not. One guy was Mexican. He was convinced he was Chinese. And he would walk around speaking gibberish, Asian-sounding gibberish. He wasn't making fun of Chinese people. He literally thought he was speaking Chinese. And I think I used to think to myself, how difficult must it be to live in a world in which you think you are something that you actually are not? Yeah. There was another one of the guys who believed he was God. Yeah. He walked around demanding worship and threatening hellfire and brimstone and punishment. 
And I used to think to myself, how terrible must it be to live in a world in which you believe you are something that you are not? The more I reflected upon that, the more I began to realize that that malady is something that we have all suffered from and continue to suffer from. I want you to think about this. Adam's first moment of consciousness. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and you read the creation narrative and the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. I want you to imagine God's mouth coming up off of the nostrils of Adam simultaneous with Adam becoming conscious and opening his eyes. In that first moment of consciousness, he's laying on his back. The first thing he sees, the first thing he hears, the first thing he touches, the first thing he smells is not the earth, the woman, the trees, the animals, the mountains. The first thing he hears sees, smells, touches, tastes, is God's presence. He looks up into God's face. First thing he sees is God. This is the first human experience. The experience of God. And this first human experience defined for Adam his identity. I belong to him. I come from him. I'm his child. I was created by him. I see myself, but only in his eyes. I'm a reflection of him. I was formed in his image and his likeness. Do you realize that God creates the heavens and the earth and then looks down and says, I need to put my signature on this work of art. And so he creates Adam. Adam is God's signature. He's God's icon. He's God's logo. God says, I'm going to put my logo on my website here. Adam is the logo. He is, the, he, is, he is God's avatar. He is the image and likeness of God. In the ancient world, kings would often put images of themselves in parts of their kingdom where they were not physically present. So that everyone would see the image and likeness of the king and know that that king reigned over that region. God puts an image and likeness of himself on the earth so that the entire earth would look and see his image and likeness and know God reigns here. Why? There's his image walking around. There's his likeness walking around. But the image of God was not complete. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make for him a suitable rescuer, not helper. Mistranslation. A suitable rescuer. His situation's not good until she comes. I will make for him a suitable rescuer. How many single men need a suitable rescuer in your life? Mm -hmm. 
He puts him into a deep sleep. He takes the rib out of Adam. He makes Eve. He brings, him to, brings her to the man and he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then it says, and so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Which means that the image of God is now complete because there's the male and there's the female. Which means that you and I, male and female, man and woman, are created in the image and likeness of God, that God's created intent. The thing that you must understand is that the identity of anything is dependent upon the creator of that thing. Your identity is is dependent upon the one who created you. And if you think you are anything other or any one other than what he created you to be, you have mental illness. You might as well walk around speaking gibberish thinking you're speaking Chinese. If you believe that you are anything other than a child of God, the image and likeness of God created in his image, invested with his dominion and power, Where do we lose sight of that? Calamity. We lose sight of that in the midst of calamity, in the midst of trial, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of difficulty. We lose sight of who we are. Maybe God's punishing me. Yeah, because that's what I would do to my child, right? Just smite her. How about just tell her to stop doing that? Do you think God's punishing you and you don't even know what he's punishing you for? I must have did something. Jesus walked right through calamity after calamity and never felt that God was punishing him. He saw walking through calamity as simply a part of fulfilling his destiny, which comes from his identity. He faces the cross and says, for this reason, I was born. For this reason, I came into the world. The cross was not the loss of his identity. It was the fulfillment of his destiny. This is what I came for. And when you lose your identity in the midst of a calamity, you face the cross with no joy set before you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sat down at the right hand of God. How did Jesus endure the cross? First of all, there was joy set before him which means he saw the joy on the other side of the cross. He saw this trial as simply a passageway, a gateway to joy. Greater joy than I've ever known is on the other side of this cross. And so he he looked to the joy and then said, I can endure this. It's even neurologically true and proven that your ability to deal with crisis situations depends upon your joy strength. You can't make it through anything if you don't have enough joy to sustain you.
He gathers joy strength and then says, I can endure this cross. Why? Because this cross is not the loss of divine favor. It's not the loss of divine blessing. It's not the loss of my identity. It's not a curse. It's not the removal of the blessing. It's not the father cursing me, abandoning me, turning his back on me. It's not loss. It's a gateway to greater blessing. Why? Because I still know who I am. This calamity doesn't change my identity. I'm still the son. I occupy a place at his right hand. In our infancy, we lose sight of our identity in the midst of our calamity. And the problem with that is that if you lose sight of your identity in the midst of the calamity, you now have no strength to make it through the calamity. If you forget who you are in the midst of the trial, you've just abandoned the very thing that can grant you the strength to make it through the trial. May I draw your attention to the book of Lion King, chapter 7, verse 32. Simba, you have forgotten me. No, Father, I could never forget you. You have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. You are my son and the rightful heir to the throne. Simba, you have forgotten me. You've gotten so lost in your calamity that you simply embraced your place sitting here eating bugs and eating insects when you're a lion, when you're a king. I haven't forgotten you, Dad. I just forgot me. One in the same, Simba. You can't forget you without forgetting me because you're my son. You're my son. You can't think lowly of yourself and think highly of me simultaneously. You're my son. You don't realize that when you cut yourself down and diminish yourself and think that you're something less than what I created you to be, it's an accusation against me. You've forgotten who you are. And so you've forgotten me. Adversity has threatened your identity. The Apostle Paul learned this so well. He was like Jesus. Walked through adversity and he says, our light and momentary affliction It's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Why? I got joy set before me. Why do I have joy set before me? Because I believe that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose, which means I've got to walk through a calamity without forgetting that I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. It means that I never lose sight of the fact that I love him and am called according to his purpose and therefore this calamity is going to work good for me. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. That's who I am. 
That's who you are. Predestined, foreknew me, he foreknew me, he predestined me, he called me, he justified me, he glorified me. It's already done, it's baked into my very identity. Calamity can't change it. And then Paul goes on there in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? Listen, if God be for us, who can be against us? Answer. What's the answer? If God be for us, who can be against us? That means that opposition is an illusion. It's not real. Your calamity is an illusion. It's a temporary smoke screen. All it is is you're standing at the free throw line, but the backboard is clear glass. And so you can see the fans of the other team sitting behind the backboard going, miss it. And you're looking at the fans through the backboard, backboard instead of looking at the rim. That's all the opposition of the enemy is. He's just sitting in the stands watching you. He can't come out on the court and touch you. The problem is we're listening to the wrong crowd of witnesses. There's a cloud of witnesses that have gone before you, that have run their race, that have entered into the heavens, and they're watching you run their, your race, and they're cheering for you. They're cheering you on. Come on, you gotta run. Bagus, you keep running. You gotta run. Come on, Anthony, don't stop running. You gotta, you gotta run. I know you skinned your knee and fell down, but you need to get up, put some Acuricone on that, and keep running. Your race is not done, Pastor Vern. Your race is not done. My friend Peter told me the story of his father. It was one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard before in my life. His father was not walking with the Lord. His father did not know the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Peter one day and told him, your father will not die without embracing me as his Lord and Savior. Your father's going to be saved. One day Peter is 15 or 16 years old. He's at school. They come into his classroom and call him out. You've got to go to the hospital and say goodbye to your father. Your father's been in a car accident. The doctor says he's not going to survive the night. Peter says, no, my dad's going to live. He hasn't accepted Jesus yet. But he goes to the hospital. He just believes his father's in a coma. Miraculously, his father recovers, but he doesn't completely recover. He awakes from the coma. He regains consciousness but most of his motor functions he does not have. He can barely walk, can't take care of himself, and for the rest of his life, he needs to be taken care of. For the first two years, he was depressed. He was angry. Still didn't open his heart to Jesus. Peter thought the fact that he miraculously recovered, he's definitely going to receive Jesus, right? Nope. Two years go by. One day Peter comes home and his father is sitting in the living room with a smile on his face. Dad, why are you smiling? He says, because I gave my life to Jesus Christ last night. Peter goes, what? How? What happened? He said, I never told you guys this, but for the last two years, after I came out of my coma, 
I've been seeing these little lights like lightning bugs. They fly at me all day long and they oppress me. It's torment all night long, all day long. They never stop. It's just constant. I think he said, I think they were little demons. They don't leave me alone and I see them and it's all day and all night. And I've been in constant depression. And he says, but last night I was laying in bed in the middle of the night. Your mother was asleep next to me and I'm seeing these lightning bugs come at me and I can't, I can't stop it and I can't go to sleep and I'm just in torment. I'm just in utter turmoil. And all of a sudden a light is in the room and I look and there's a man standing at my bed and he looks at those lights and he goes, and they leave. And then he turns to walk away and I said, wait, who are you? And he turns to me and smiles and says, I am Jesus Christ. And then he vanishes before my eyes. And he begins to weep. And this is what he says. I just can't understand why he would save a worthless man like me. I can barely walk. I can't preach. I can't teach. I can't be a missionary. I can't serve him in any way. Why would he save a worthless person like me? Do you hear what he's saying? I'm defining my value by my condition. All he could see was that he was all crumbled up. He couldn't see that he was still a hundred dollar bill. That when Jesus looked at him, he saw his value, not his utility. And when Jesus looks at you, he sees your value, not your utility. He does not look at you as an instrument that he can't wait to use. He looks at you as a son or a daughter that he can't wait to love. Some of you have been stuck for years, not because you can't figure out what to do with your life. Not because you couldn't figure out what your mission in the world was. You've been stuck because you can't figure out who you are. And you've been looking for something to tell you. Some success, excellence. Help me to do something right. Help me to contribute something. I just need something to go right in my life so that I can feel better about myself. May I say to you that something went right in your life 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ took a cross and nails in his hands and feet. You don't do that for people that you don't love. He saw the value in you before you were born. He saw the value in you before he created you. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Before you could ever do anything for him, he did everything for you. Why? Because your identity, who you are, is precious in his sight. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. You are his image and likeness. You are his child. You are his flesh and blood. You are his offspring. When he sees you, he sees himself. I don't know if every parent experiences this, but every time I look at my daughter, I see me. She looks way more like me than she does her mother. (laughs) 
And if I ever get angry for her, my anger is but for a moment, but my favor is for a lifetime. Why? Because she's my child. I would give her the world. I would lay down my life for her. Why? Because she's my child. Not because I need her to do something for me. Her value is not in her utility. Adversity doesn't change who you are. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, who furthermore is also risen, who has ascended to God's right hand, who makes intercession for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trial or tribulation or pestilence or famine or sword? In all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And love, true love, at its core, has nothing to do with utility or function. Love, in its essence, is familial. Which means, love, true love, creates family. The act of loving anyone is the act of making that person your family. That's, that's, I mean, and the deeper love gets, the more that familial bond gets where you feel like you're family with people who are different colors and different shades and come from different places and speak different languages, but you're family. Why? Love. We used to sing this song when I was growing up. We are one in the bond of love. We are one in the bond of love. We have joined our spirits with the spirit of God. We are one in the bond of love. Even though all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and in our sin we've separated ourselves from God, we've left the family. You know what God does? He steps right over that with love. His love covers a multitude of sins. Come on back in here. Come on back in here. Come on back in here. We run from God because we forget who we are. We run from God because we lose sight of our identity in the midst of our calamity. But when we wake up and remember who we are, when we become like little children again, see, the thing about a little child is even if you have to punish that little child, that little child will cry and then run right to you. They will look to you to comfort them, even though you were the one who hurt them. Remember my little girl when she was potty training 
she would soil herself and run right to me or mommy. She wouldn't try to hide because she messed up. She ran. She didn't lose sight of her identity because of her calamity. The one thing that she knew more than anything else is I came from mom and dad. I'm theirs. And that means I'm their problem. (laughs) And so no matter what I do, no matter what I mess up, I'm calling on mom. I'm calling on dad. I'm going home. Not trying to fix it myself. Not trying to become my own redeemer. Amen. 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 He knows your name. Worship team, come back. You know my name. Oh, how you walk with me. You remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? First they sinned. They eat the fruit. God said, don't eat it. Then they realize they're naked. They close themselves with a fig tree. And then they hear God coming. And what do they do when they hear God coming? They run and hide. They hide from each other, and then they hide from God. And what does God say? Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Why are you hiding from me? Adam, have you forgotten where you are? Have you forgotten who you are? Did you forget who made you? You forget who formed you out of the dust of the ground, whose breath is in your very body. How can you hide from the source of your breath? How can you run from the one who formed you? Adam, where are you? Come back to me, Adam. I know you messed up, but come back to me, Adam. Come back to me. God comes looking for Adam because even though he knew what Adam did, he didn't forget who Adam was. He came looking for Eve because even though he knew what Eve did, he didn't forget who Eve was. You're still my son and my daughter. You're still my children. Don't forget who you are. Come to me. Don't try to fix yourselves up first. What if when my daughter was potty training, she went to the bathroom and tried to clean herself up before letting us know what happened? No, 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 no. You can't. You're not going to do a good job of cleaning yourself up. This is a job for mommy. (laughs) I must confess, I was good at it. I could change a diaper boy, get all in there. She'd be squeaky clean by the time I was done. Didn't bother me at all. Why? That's my baby. That's my baby. My daughter and I right now are reading a book about a family that escapes from North Korea. And in the story, there's a scene where they're on a train heading to Pusan from Seoul. And it's several days and there's no bathrooms and there's no toilets. And the first person that soils himself is an old man. And everybody starts yelling at him. They're all mad at him. And the little girl is thinking to herself, we're all going to be in that situation in a few hours. But it's interesting how when someone else is in a different condition than we, it's so easy to point the finger and look down on them. This could have been a rich man in North Korea, but now he's on a train with no toilets. His condition is going to be backslidden. Everybody's going to be in a backslidden condition pretty soon. That condition doesn't change our value. 
Can you look at a person who has soiled themselves and remember that they're a child of God? Because you know what? Oftentimes we judge others because of their condition because we can't let ourselves go either. He knows your name. He knows your name. He doesn't forget who you are. And because he knows your name, because he doesn't forget who you are, as if you know your name, if you remember who you are, if you refuse to lose sight of your identity in the midst of your calamity, do you know what happens? No fire can burn you. What's the next one? No, no weapon can harm you. That ain't right. No mountain can stop you. Because he holds your hand. Please put him up on the screen. Now you're walking in victory because his power is within you. No giant can defeat you because he holds your hand.